The Beer EDU Podcast, Episode 106, Tech with Heart with Stacey Roshan. Welcome to the Beer EDU Podcast, the podcast for educators that love to learn and share ideas with fellow educators over beers, with your hosts, Kyle Anderson and Ben Dixon. Hey, Kyle. What's going on, Ben? Not much. This is another episode of the Beer EDU Podcast, episode 106. Yes, indeed. And if this is the Beer EDU Podcast, that must make me, Kyle Anderson, a special education teacher in Las Vegas. You can find me on Twitter, at Anderson EdTech. Same with the Instagram. And then my blog, AndersonEdTech.net. And then my book, To the Edge, Successes and Failures Through Risk-Taking. And you must be... Ben Dixon. I am a principal in Washoe County, which is Reno, so northern Nevada, about seven hours from you. Um, Depending on how fast is, you drive. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at bdixonnv. So if this is the Beer EDU podcast, then we probably have some beers. And Kyle, what do you have for us? I have what? something that ranks very highly on the untapped app, something that got a five, which, you know, the wow. fives are few and far between. So I have the founder KBS Maple Mackinac Fudge Flavored Stout. So I know it's mouthful. Yeah, that's not going on. <laughs> Literally and figuratively. Yes. So we've talked about founders with the breakfast stout before. Yes. We've talked about the KBS, which stands for Kentucky Breakfast Stout, which is right. breakfast stout aged in bourbon barrels. Well, yep. this one takes the KBS and brews it with maple syrup and then Mackinac Island Fudge Coffee. And brings on all sorts of fun. So now, just quick background. Mackinac Island, it's a small island in Lake Huron, northern part of Michigan, uh, like right where the Upper Peninsula of Michigan and the Lower Peninsula come together. You got the Mackinac Bridge there at what is called the Mackinac Straits. Cool thing about Mackinac Island is that there are no vehicles on the island with the exception of like emergency vehicles. So right. it's all Victorian. So the the main uh, iconic building that's there is the Grand Hotel, and it's, I mean, just absolutely beautiful. It's one of those places where even in the slow season, towards the end of the summer, it's still like probably 600 bucks a night to stay at this place because wow. it's just insane. But um, everything's horse-drawn carriage or you can bike around the island, but it's famous for its fudge, like all these fudge shops. So okay. basically founders took Mackinac Island Fudge, which is very iconic around Michigan, and they brewed it into the beer a little bit with the coffee and the maple syrup. So this is a boozer, 11% yeah. ABV. So big one, 40 IBU. So you got okay. the fudge, the coffee, you got the maple, you got that little bit of booziness on it. It, it is absolutely divine. This is not a beer I'm going to drink an entire four-pack of, A, because I, I would be absolutely wrecked if I did that, and B, a four-pack of this. Sick. Oh, yeah. yeah. Four pack Not of this from the was, alcohol, just from the other stuff. Yeah, the sweetness. But this was also twenty two bucks for four bottles. Oh so, yeah, yeah. So yeah. you'd be, um, you know, paying a pretty yeah. penny for it. So. But my true. wife was so great. She uh, was visiting her mother in Michigan a while back and saw it at the store. 
took a picture of it, sent it to me and said, is this something that you would want? Yes. Get that in the luggage and on the plane. I don't care what it costs. Just get it here. Because I'm going to say that because you can find KBS and those, but that one, I there's no way that you're going to find that on the West Coast. Yeah, I, I, I I'm not. I have not seen it. I, yeah, I'm not thinking it's probably being distributed out this way. The, the KBS, I could pick that up at a local store or yeah. restaurants will even have it sometimes. Yes, right? I, they, they got a yeah. bottle list. You'll see it on there, and and they'll charge like twenty bucks for a single bottle in the restaurant because that's how you make your money in the restaurant biz. Oh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, no, this stuff is absolutely divine, and I've got two bottles left in the fridge, and uh, I may age one of them just to see how it goes. Cool. Now well, you, I have, my I have the opposite of what you have. Yeah, you are so, completely opposite here. So this is a new beer, I, and I think it just came out this year. It's the Sierra Nevada Summer Break Session slash India Hazy. It's on Untapped as like a Session slash India Pale Ale. It's um, basically it is a summer beer from Sierra Nevada, 4.6 ABV, so the exact opposite probably of your beer, 30 IBUs, so close on the IBUs. To me, this is this is the lawnmower beer. It is it is super drinkable, not super heavy at all. Um, yeah, this is the definition of a lawnmower beer. Yeah, so Tyler Keefe uh, listens, and he embraces yeah. the the lawnmower yeah. beer, and so if he, when he's listening, I'm not. I shouldn't say if he's listening. When he listens, Tyler, you need to go pick this one up and let us know how it goes with your lawn mowing. Yes. Because uh, Ben, it's funny you and I. We always talk about how beers are lawnmower beers, and yet neither one of us has a lawn to mow. I don't have a lawn. Yeah, we, we live in the desert, so we have rocks and we have dirt and we have yes. more rocks. So we don't is, we don't mow is, lawns. Yeah, this would be a going outside doing things kind of beer where you yeah. don't want your beer is the exact opposite because i'm oh, yeah. your beer and take a nap no so. it, it is now it is full-on summer in las vegas where temperatures yeah, the are temp in the triple friend? digits now yes uh today is so far we're we're in early june as we record this it's the hottest day of the year so far it was 105 last i saw yep. so definitely warm, yeah, we're but- 95 yeah, we'll I'm in the AC, too. so this this isn't as bad in the AC. But I would not be sitting outside trying to like grill burgers or something while drinking yeah. this. So, yeah. but Ben, we also have a guest with us. So let's take a moment to welcome Stacy Roshan to the podcast. Stacy, yes. how are Hi, you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so excited to be here with you guys, listening to your beer stories. <laughs> learning yeah, something we, outside of my zone of expertise. <laughs> yeah, we were talking a little bit beforehand about you're you're not a beer drinker, so right. you you were joking you have a cup and in that cup is water. Yeah, water. That's yeah. Okay. That's okay. Because we we've talked about this before, we do not discriminate what people drink nope. on this show. Um so that is quite okay, but uh yeah, we, Ben and I, yeah, we totally geek out about this stuff. We have a good time. We do. So, yeah. So, Stacy, thank you for so much for joining us. And how about, like, just tell us a little bit about you and, like, who you are and what your passion is. And, and we'll start learning. We just want to learn all about you. That's really ah, what we're here for. Thank you. Um, so, I am at a K through 12 independent school. I am at the Bullis School. I've been there. This is, I'm just rounding out my 14th year this year. I am the Director of Innovation and Educational Technology, which really just means that I get to work with 
uh, the teachers and helping them integrate cool ideas into their classroom. So for me, you know, it really, the part that I love the most about my job is kind of the lesson design, digging into not just the tools, but like how do we integrate them into lessons? How do we make, um, you know, next level experiences for our students utilizing these tools? Um, I'm really passionate about tools that allow us to hear from all the different types of learners in our classroom, you know, just empowering all different types of voices in different ways, utilizing um, tech tools. And um, let's see, what else? I'm also the author of Tech With Heart. And uh, I've also got my little poodle sitting on my lap right here. Say hi, buddy, to everybody. Um, and, and he's the inspiration behind my Twitter handle. We were talking a little bit about that earlier. <laughs> I don't know the story. So you have to tell us now you have to do it. So I know the story. Sure. Okay. So back in, I think it was 2010, I was at the building learning communities conference, Alan November's conference, and I'm sitting there and he's saying, that everybody right now, you need a Twitter, like everybody needs a Twitter. This is something that's essential for your learning. I didn't have a Twitter. So I'm sitting there kind of missing my dog thinking to myself, all right, I'm going to get on Twitter. And I'm going to watch what people say on Twitter, but I'm never going to use Twitter. So my Twitter handle was buddy XO because I love him very much. And um, then I started using Twitter. So you know, and now I can't change my Twitter handle. So. <laughs> that no, you would be. You're not the only person I know that has a, a similar story where they're like, it's the same kind of thing. I think you're at a conference and somebody's up there and they're like, you need to get on Twitter, but and this is why. And then you're like, okay, fine, I'll get on. And people do. They pick whatever, or people in college pick things that I think are fascinating. <laughs> yeah, that, that was me. Mine was not 2010, though. Mine was 2015. And uh, I was one of like maybe three people out of 200 in the room that did not have one. So then I'm like, well, now I got to be one of the cool kids. And I actually, my students helped me come up with the name. And my original one, I, my Twitter now is Anderson EdTech, you know, because I've since matured uh, with my Twittering out there. But no, they, uh, my students told me that they always loved when I went off on tangents about random things because I, I knew the most random of stuff. So they're like, why doesn't your Twitter handle be Anderson knows it? So, <laughs> so that was my, that was my first Twitter handle. And I, a, after a couple of months, I'm like, that kind of sounds pretentious. So I changed it to Anderson Ed Tech after yeah. a few months. So, but Anyway, so, well, welcome to the show. Again, we appreciate you taking some time out uh, to join us a little bit. So now, prior to your position you're in now, so you've been teaching now for a while. So tell us a little bit more about like your career and how you kind of got into that position where you're working more with educators now rather than students. Yeah, so like my whole teaching journey has just been like, it's just been a journey that I've been following um, myself. I actually didn't ever think I was going to be a teacher. My mom's a teacher, actually. I always loved math. She taught me math all growing up. I got to substitute teach at her school sometimes when I was on breaks from college. I tutored all growing up. 
Um, but when I studied in school was a was economics and I did it with a real math focus. Um, and so after I did my undergrad and my grad school in economics theory, so it was a lot of math. And then I worked as an economist for a little bit and I didn't really like it. And so I said, I'm going to do something that I love, um, which I think I love, which is teaching. And so I found this perfect position in this independent school that I'm still at. Um, and I started teaching math. And um, then I just felt like when I started teaching AP Calculus in particular, that class, there's just so much material to get through so quickly. I had envisioned kind of just being this teacher who was going to be able to sit with students on a daily basis and, you know, really develop these really rich relationships. That was what I wanted to do. And when I started teaching AP Calculus, I was stuck at the board for so much of class time. And so that was that summer was when I went to that Allen November conference that I was telling you about. And when I was there, I learned about screencasting. That simple idea was like a game changer for me. Um, you know, I was just like, okay, I can make a video. So I said to myself, okay, I'm gonna make a video for the whole first chapter we do, which is kind of a review unit anyway. I'll introduce it to my class. I'll see how things go. I introduced it to the class. There wasn't really a flip classroom thing. So my students actually called it the backwards classroom because they thought it was all backwards. And, you know, we just, we went with it together. Like I was like, we're going to do this for chapter two. I've planned out chapter two videos. And then, you know, we'll see where to go from there. And they were like, okay, it's fine for chapter two because we already know that material but it's probably not going to be okay after that. I was like, okay, we did it chapter two. They loved it. We continued with it. And so the whole year they watched all the like very teacher directed lecture stuff through video in that flipped classroom model. Um, and so that piqued my interest in technology as a solution to a problem. And that's really the approach that I like to take even when I work with other teachers, like we have, these tech tools, but like, what is your problem? Let's dig into it and let's see if technology can provide a solution to that problem. So, so Stacy, what, and I might've missed it, but what, so when you did the flipped classroom with your first group of kids, which, what class was that that you were teaching? That was the AP calculus class. So, okay. So I guess my question, we all know AP, it's all about the test at the end of the year. So did you see like an increase in your kids passing that test? Or, I mean, what did, what did, the, what did it look like at the end for those kids? I'm just curious. Yeah. I mean, so I always like to, you know, especially I'm a math teacher too. Like I have very limited data because I have really small classes and right. I hadn't been teaching very much before I flipped my classroom, but, um, so, you know, I would expect my scores to go up just with more experience too. Right. But the year that I flipped, like every single student passed the exam. Um, and nice. the scores just, I mean, they continued to be really, really solid. And I think um, I, what, what I would say in all honesty is students who like may have, gotten a three, were able mm -hmm. to 
get a four, even that first year that I flipped, just mm -hmm. because they were able to review and rewatch videos, especially when we got to like AP prep, they could go back. Mm -hmm. And in, so I teach AP Calculus AB, and for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, there's the AB and there's the BC exam. And so students can choose which one to take. And so, you know, a lot of times like the kids, when they are in AP Calculus AB, like they're so, they're such high flyers, right? But they're like, I'm not a math person. I didn't get into the BC level. So half of my thing in teaching them is like, we got to build their confidence back up because obviously like they're super hard workers they're super mm -hmm. talented like they've got it if they got into ap calculus right. like you know we've gotten into like such this competitive atmosphere where it's like oh, suddenly ab is not enough come on <laughs> but anyway um so though i have a lot of students who think that math isn't their thing but they're super super hard workers and so they were the ones and i think part of what worked so brilliantly about the flip model in ab was that they were the ones that were like, give me more material because I want to study more to be able to maximize my success. And then I was really able to be the coach in that process, which, which is, I think the best part about it is I was able to do all those things that I was looking to do. I was able to get around to them, sit with them, kind of help them build their confidence, be there when they thought they needed me the most, which is a really, you know, they think they need you while they're doing the problem sets. A lot of them discovered that they were able to do it on their own or just ask a classmate, whereas they would have been asking me the question before. Now, because, you know, you give them a lot of time, they kind of own that time. And again, I had really high flyers in that class. So I'm a former AP teacher myself. I taught AP U.S. history. And I find this hard to believe even now today. They say that the AP US history test is the hardest test out of all of them because of the sheer amount of content that's there. So now for me, the AP calculus would be the toughest one because I struggled with pre-calc when I was in high school. Like that was the hardest I worked for a B in my entire life was in pre-calculus. I couldn't even imagine what calculus was like. So when I hear you talk about kids saying like, I wasn't good enough for BC Calc, I'm like, what? whatever kid. I mean, that's, that's frustrating to hear you say that because I struggled with calculus or pre-calculus even. So, but you were doing this flip model 10 years ago then mm -hmm. before this was even a thing. So I guess I'll do, I'll just, I'll ask the one question first and then see what you say. And then if my, maybe you'll answer my second question then, but when you first started doing this, were the, the videos that you made something that you used for a couple of years or was it something that you looked at and said, Oh, that video didn't work as well as I thought, or like, I didn't like that video. So we're, or were you re-recording these every year? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, so the first year was all about just making the videos as the year went on. Cause I wanted, I had made the first chapter over the summer, but I didn't want to make too much because again, like I wanted to see how kids reacted and I wanted to grow from that. So I was just staying ahead of them, you know? Um, and so all my focus went into making the videos. Then my second year, I really started thinking more about what I wanted to do during class time. I had so much more class time. So I really concentrated on what class looked like and I didn't worry about the videos. I purely reused them. And then my third year, 
I started flipping my Algebra 2 class and I started editing the calculus videos. And by editing, I was just doing like little things where like I saw a lot of kids maybe missed example two or they would come to class having start example two. So I was like, okay, let me re-record example two. And so some of my videos, like I, I really enjoy editing, but some of my videos still, like you'll watch them and you'll like, I'm using a different speaker. I'm using a different program, but I've like mashed them together um, and kind of taken the best of different takes. And that's what I've done over the years is I've kind of, made pieces of video. Sometimes I redo a whole video and then I take, you know, I, I remix them and I put them together and, you know, they continually evolve and I make little pieces of videos uh, still as time goes on. But a lot of my effort um, in making the videos really, and I think that's a message to go to everybody is like, there's a lot of upfront work, but it's reusable. And even if you don't use it in its entirety, you can kind of, you know, just edit. And I do enjoy video editing. And so, you know, it's the beauty of it, right? Yeah, about the time that you were f flipping, that's when I was really embracing things like Google Slides or PowerPoint. I can't remember which one at the time. And you're right about the, the upfront work. It was a lot of work putting everything together and making them visually appealing and not just a bunch of text on the screen right. and whatnot. And I really prided myself in doing that at the time to where like, I don't have those presentations anymore because I haven't taught AP now in like five years. But I, I think back to when I was making those and I mean, I think they would still be pretty good today. I mean, but now, I mean, there'd be more video incorporated now because we're just at a point now where it's, it's so much easier to do that now for one. And then we, we just know, over the years, how video is so much more engaging than just right. simple slides with pictures. So, so my follow-up question to that then is once you got everything in and taken care of and created, did you find yourself having an easier time getting through the required content? Because the, the thing about AP is that if you're not an AP teacher, you may not realize is that you basically have one month less that standard curriculum to get through everything. So did you find yourself getting through things a lot easier as a result of this? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we have at a solid month, usually like six weeks of review now at the end of the year. Um, and I love, and I do go quicker through the material because I find that the students really benefit from that prolonged review. And also that gives me the ability to turn it back over to students so that they start creating some videos, actually kick off AP review by having them watch videos that previous students had made solving actual AP free response questions. And then as they go on, they're recording their videos, which I can use for future students. So um, that's really helpful because students talk to one another differently with, and with a you know lens of empathy, like they're going through the struggle right there at that moment that you know we just can't replicate as teachers. So that's been a really valuable part of the review also. And then two, that's the moment when, you know, like I was saying before, you have these videos that you had created early on. So helping students kind of create a customized playlist 
of things that they need to do for review because everybody's at different spots by the time we get there. So it gives us some more flexibility in terms of students getting what they actually need instead of it just, you know, being like, okay, we are all doing this today. There's certain things that we all need to do today, of course, but certain students will be struggling in certain areas more than others. And we can easily identify that, you know, when we take our like first diagnostic AP practice test or whatever. And that's, again, go back to a YouTube playlist. And, and that's, that is the real beauty of that. So then, so then thinking about that and like your new role and how that looks, I mean, and, and specifically, how does that role look this year of all years? Like in that, because I, I see more and more, especially like at our, at my level where we are flipping classrooms, it's kind of like we all talked about flipping classroom. Everybody's flipping their classroom now. You have to. So, so what does that look like for you now? Yeah. Um, you know, like as much as I have found so much success with the flipped classroom uh, and I love the model, I never start with that. Like, and I would never say to somebody else, like, you should flip your classroom. Like, I want people to identify that as like a problem spot and a need for them. And also, I really believe that for me, like the flip classroom model made so much sense for my personality and the way that I do things like it allowed me to be a calmer person in the classroom because I kind of could be that very like structured teacher on video. I knew I got all the content across and then it opened me up to allowing students to take more ownership. And so that was a big shift for me, you know, cause that, that's a big shift. I think as we grow as educators, it's like you start by thinking like, if you don't say it, then you didn't teach it well enough. And then, you know, as we evolve and we get better, like we're able to allow students to discover more of it on their own and kind of coach them in getting there. Anyway, um, so when I work with other teachers, like they definitely flip components of their classroom. And sometimes, quite honestly, the best thing that they can do is create interactive slides. Like it doesn't always have to be a video for certain material that works really well. For certain other material, there's things that students can read and then interact with, you know, and that's actually the best way to deliver that or just add audio. And that's it to something that they're reading. And, and so one of the tools I've really been loving this year is Cami, for example. And the reason I love it is because a teacher could take something like, you know, a worksheet that they were doing in the classroom before. And now, you know, we need to make it more accessible for all students who are, some of them were in school, some of them are at home. How do we kind of do that? So the teacher right on the Cami worksheet, like there wasn't a whole lot of tech to get them set up with, right? They can put the directions, but then they can also put a little audio clip. Let me read the directions aloud to you to help students who, who want that. Um, and also just like, I think it really helps deliver with the tone and all of that. The teacher can create a video right there if they want to with their face or even with a screen recording. And they can do that all on that one worksheet. And then, you know, students can get their own copies of it. And the teacher can even ask the question and students can type their response right there. So we can kind of do it all in one. I think one of the most challenging things when I talk about the flipped classroom to other people is just like, how do I get started? Like, how do I set it all up? And that was probably the hardest thing for me. Like now making a video is nothing because 
I have it all set up. I have the right technology. I have, you know, my nice Wacom tablet that's always plugged in. I can easily handwrite. Like before I knew how to use that or before I had it plugged in, I was like, how do I even, how do I even start this, you know? So I think that's part of what I'm really interested in doing is like finding different tech solutions for different levels of people and trying to make it all seamless for the teacher and for the student. Yeah, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, fast forwarding 10 years from when you started doing this is that the tools that are available now, like I think back 10 years ago about the only video tool I can think of is iMovie. And I mean, that was that was a Mac only tool right there. And and the sad thing is, is that iMovie hasn't changed really in the last 10 years. There's not been really any updates with that. But now you've got I use Camtasia for pretty much all my podcast editing, for any video editing uh, creation that I'm going to do. But so you got all these different tools that are out there now. I'm, I mean, I'm looking at Screencast-O-Matic um, out there. You've got Screencastify and Loom right on my Chrome web bar right here. And then even like Awesome Screenshot has come full circle now and has embraced screencasting like in short bits. So there's all sorts of great free tools out there. It's just that a lot of teachers just don't know what they don't know. And if you point it out to them, that's when you can embrace whichever one is best for you. So I, I've been a Screencastify guy for a while, but ever since I was introduced to Loom here a while back, I think I'm becoming more of a Loom uh, person now because, I mean, there's just so many great things that Loom does that Screencastify doesn't. I mean, but they're both great tools. I know. I know. It's hard. And that's part of the thing that's hard is that there are so many choices. Um I'm also a Camtasia user. I've been using Camtasia all along and I love it. Um, but you know, like that's because I really like editing too. Um, I've really been interested in uh, explain everything also, which, you know, you do need for that one. Now they have a subscription model and you do need to pay for it. But talking about an all in one tool, like you know, for a teacher who just is really into making like whiteboard style videos, wants to get easily started with the flip classroom, you get explain everything. Um, you know, you pay the monthly subscription and you record there. You can even do some editing in there. You can do the whiteboard style thing. You can also like import slides if you're more of the slides type of person. And then you get a link that you can distribute to your class, you know? So again, like I'm all for free tools also, but sometimes I think that just like paying a little bit in order to make your workflow easier is so worth it. Um, and so I think that's something that I've also figured out over the years. Um, and I, I stick to a small suite of tools. Like that is what I really do believe in. I, I love exploring a million tools, but I try not to integrate too many of them um, just because like for my own sanity, but also so that my students can use those tools to the maximum also. So we're not like going to too many different places. Yeah. It's something to keep in mind when you're trying to choose one of these tools is if it's something that's going to be just for you, investing a little bit of money is a great idea. So yeah, Camtasia. Now, I was fortunate and got it for free, and I get all the updates for free as well. But $169 for an educator license is a small price to pay for the tools that Camtasia offers. But um, if you're looking at something where now now students need to use it as well, I think both Screencastify, Loom, Screencast-O-Matic are all great tools. Even Flipgrid has 
the ability to do whiteboard and and not not necessarily screen casting, but I mean, especially in a math classroom where a student mm-hmm. can work out a problem on the whiteboard while voicing it over in Flipgrid. So there's so many options out there. And yeah, it's just, it really depends on what you're going to be using it for and who's going to be using it. Yeah, Flipgrid is what my students use to make their videos. That's how they're making their videos. And they're actually just using uh the phone app and they're taking their phone, right. hovering it over their piece of paper and you know, they just show what's on their paper underneath. So it's like the least fancy thing imaginable, mm-hmm. but what is it about? It's about students explaining their work, showing what they're doing, explaining their process step-by-step. That's all we need. Well, and, and Stacey, you talked a little bit before about like you, the tool, the tool is meant to solve a problem. So in your role, I kind of want to go back to that. Like, like I can imagine in your role, it's not just, hi, I'm this person and here's a tool, go use it. You have to spend some time really building relationships with those people and, and knowing what it is they, they need. So tell us a little more about how, how do you do that? Yeah, um, I'm always observing what people are already mm-hmm. doing. And so a lot of times I'll see a project going on, I'll see something going on. And so then I'll have a conversation with the teacher um, and usually the teachers are in teams. So, you know, that also really helps spread things wide. I think when you really embrace kind of like the way that the teams work together and you know how those teams of teachers work together. And so, you know, I'll talk to them and say like, hey, maybe we could add in this element or I'll see something coming up. And sometimes, quite honestly, it's something that we I have to just remember that we should do the next time this project comes around. So I'll spark the conversation now. I set a lot of notes in my calendar of like, hey, don't forget to loop back with this person next year, like a month before this project normally happens. And those are have been some of the best ideas that we've had because we really had time to have a conversation. Um, we could think about how the project went this year when they didn't utilize the technology and then what we want to improve upon for next year and kind of how we want to integrate the tool. Like those are some of my favorite conversations. So when we can do that, you know, like, again, I've been at the same school for a while. So I'm able to do that type of of thing a lot. Um, But also I, you know, try and when tools come out with updates. So even if I see like a Flipgrid update coming out, instead of just sharing that update with teachers, I try and like create a company couple of examples or within my tip because I send a weekly tip to all the teachers that I work with within that I kind of have some examples of like how you might use it and I try and you know I'm a math teacher so math usually comes to my head first but I really try and think about like all different subjects and rotate them and so then I'll you know, kind of share a couple of examples there and then say, hey, if you want to work together on something or if this might be a tool that you might be able to use in an upcoming unit, contact me. And so that's when, usually when I send out the tip, I always get people responding back. And what I love um, too is that, you know, as we were talking about, sometimes it's like you got to start with the problem spot. So a lot of times people will write me back and say, oh, I loved that tip. Like I really say it was a tip about Flipgrid. I really want to use Flipgrid. I have this upcoming thing. And then we talk about it. And as we start talking about it, we're like, is Flipgrid really the right tool for this particular thing? And so we're able to like step back together and think 
holistically about like, what are your goals here and what is the best tool? So even though the, that email that I sent sparked that initial conversation, it might not be the landing spot that we thought we'd be at. Well, and for the past year, I'm sure that those weekly tips were probably a little more frequent because so many updates were coming out on pretty much everything. I mean, some of these tools are not even the same tool they were a year ago. I mean, you look at Zoom, for example, which was something that a lot of school districts used and how in the beginning you basically just gave out a link. There was no security to it whatsoever. Right. And then and then what was it? One of the words of the year, Zoom bomb, became a thing right. because of that. So just the, the amount of tech tips that I'm sure you had to write over the last year as a result of that. So I'm sure things are starting to calm down just a tad now, but maybe they're not. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, summertime, it seems like all the ed tech companies change everything and all my tutorials become extinct. And, you know, it's a love-hate relationship because it's really sad that all my tutorials need to be redone. But at the same time, like, they're innovating. They're bringing new things to life for us. Um, so I can't really be mad at it either. <laughs> No, and in fact, I actually just got a notification uh, a little bit ago about a new Pear Deck feature about, uh, what does it say here? Uh, View a student's work holistically and prompt metacognition with teacher feedback in a flexible environment. So, and, and it goes on and on and on. But yeah, just there's another update right there. So I'm sure you got the same one because we're part of the same Slack channel. Uh, yeah. That's basically how we met through interaction in Slack as Pear Deck coaches and whatnot. So yeah, it is never ending. And you're right, summertime, I mean, ISTE is usually a time when right. tech companies are announcing either new features or new products even a lot of times. So, and uh, I actually haven't heard much about ISTE this year. And uh, the time that this is going to post, I think ISTE is going to already be passed, at least from its quote unquote normal time yeah. in the years. Uh, so, uh, but yeah, I'll definitely be watching social media in late June, early July to see what kind of different updates and new features are coming out on these different tools that we use on a daily basis. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I know. I got, I have in mind right now, I'm like, got it. My next video is, is going to be a walkthrough of that new Pear Deck uh, Reflect and Review, I think they called it. I'm yeah, excited think, about it because finally, yeah, finally, you can review by student when you go mm -hmm. to give feedback, which will be really an improvement to the workflow. And of course, you're putting the emphasis on kind of like students going back, revising their work, looking at the work. Um, and so I'm really excited about that too. Uh, so yeah, that will be good. Well, and so Stacey, you talked a lot about like your, you, you write these tips and you have all these great videos, but you also have a book. So, so tell us a little about your book. Like how did that come to fruition? Like, like what, what's in that? Yeah. So, um, my book again, like I feel like a lot of my journey, I didn't like set out to even write a book quite honestly, but you know, I had been blogging and sharing on Twitter and, you know, I just saw so many teachers who kind of like, they would just write me emails asking me more questions about like, how do I get started with this? And I just wanted to kind of share like my journey. And that's what my book is. It is me sharing like my journey in 
Flipping My Classroom is how I started. And in there, I share an eight-year timeline uh, from 2010 to 2018 about my evolution. I really want to be very transparent and just show that like my flip classroom was not the flip classroom that it like when I talk about it, there's so many elements to it. But that's because I like rolled out something new every year. And I just, you know, I started small and I was very intentional about the changes that I wanted to make. And I really thought about why I wanted to make those. So I hope that people reading it will do the same and engage in that reflective process of like, why do I want to make this change? And what is it exactly that I want to do? Um, and then I share the tools that have been integral for me. Um, and I, so then I show how, you know, I started with just the flipped videos and then made it more interactive for students and engaged students. And then I saw tools like Pear Deck, like we just talked about, that allowed me to give voice to the quieter students in the classroom. And, and that's where, again, I talk about myself as a student because I was that quiet, introverted student um, who needed more time to process before being like ready to vocalize. So raising my hand in the classroom just was not for me. I, I'm very hesitant to even call on students in the classroom. I, I don't ever cold call on students because it was such a bad experience for me as a student. And I just think there's different ways to engage students. And we have all different types of students. So um, that's really what I talk about, like how I use Pear Deck to showcase the responses of the students who were quieter. And I can do that anonymously so that it's up on the board for everybody to see so that we can celebrate different approaches to problems. As a math teacher, that's so important. I can put five different ways of solving a problem up there. I can put up an incorrect response without calling an individual student out. Um, and like, so how can we use tools to kind of get at these ideas? Like another teacher doesn't have to use Pear Deck. I found that Pear Deck worked for me, but that doesn't have to be your tool. But just, I hope that my book sparks that um, idea with people. And it's, you know, for me, it has sparked that conversation through Twitter, through other, other means, through me being able to present at conferences about like, what does empowering all different voices mean? Um, because it's not just about being very vocal. And, you know, like even using a tool like Flipgrid, I found that some students are great on video and they never had that same voice when, you know, they raise their hand in the classroom. And so, again, like to me, it's all about being able to build better relationships with students. And I've really been able to do that by embracing technology. So then the end of my book talks more about um, when I started teaching in a purely online environment, um, pre-COVID, of course, which is so different than COVID online. Like, it's so different. I designed an online course. And I just talk about that as part of my journey because I think that teaching an online course and becoming an online teacher made me a better teacher because I had to be so intentional in everything that I wanted to do. Um, and in my messaging. And so, you know, kind of how I grew from that experience. So yeah, so again, my book is about my journey, but I hope that it helps teachers kind of see their students maybe in a different light and also um, allows them to reflect on their own experiences and like their own like journey where they wanna go with things and, and helps them find the tools, like gives them, like these are the tools that I chose and here's why I chose them. 
but you know, you don't have to choose the same tools, but here was my thought process. Maybe that will help you. So if I was to put this into one sense, this is kind of the gist that I'm getting. It's a memoir of how to do technology with a focus on SEL, social emotional learning. Yes, definitely a focus on on those relationships, um, bringing a deeper level of compassion into the classroom by leveraging technology. So like, you know, as I was writing it, I was like these to a lot of people I'm seeing buzz again, this was a couple years ago about like they're two separate things like technology, automation, less personal. And I wanted to kind of flip that and say that in my experience, technology has allowed me to get to know my learners in all new ways. So, so you talked a little bit about like you were intentional in your online, the way you design your classes. What do you think like this online now, we all know however this looks, what do you think um, is the, the biggest difference, I guess, would you say between now and what, and if you are an intentional online teacher? Yeah, I mean, you know, I feel like teachers usually when they design lessons, like a lot of backwards design, you know, um, just like teachers are so thoughtful and intentional in everything that they build. But when you say like, okay, first of all, in the year of COVID, we were switching like on the fly. We were like, all right, so everybody's going to be at home. Okay, next week we're coming back to school. No, really, it's going to be half your students that are going to be at school and half of them that are going to be at home. Right. And like with switches like that happening on the fly, um, and that's nobody's fault, you know, right. but that's just how things were. It was impossible to build with that level of intentionality, not to mention I feel like my success in a lot of ways has been because I picked one thing that I was really going to focus on every year. So like when I started my online class, my biggest goal was how was I going to have really good communication with my students, like me and the students and also students to students, because I didn't want learning to feel like it was happening in isolation in my online teaching. So that was my biggest goal. So like that could be the one thing that I focused on that, that year. Like in this COVID year, you just had to be changing so much for all of your classes. You couldn't say, okay, I'm just gonna focus on AP Calculus this year. And you know, then I'll focus on Algebra 2 next year. So um, that being said, everybody has all this experience from this right. year. Um, and everybody will take a break first, I hope, um, because everybody needs to relax yeah. and kind of get their mind back in a creative mindset, because I really do believe that, um, and I struggle with this personally. So I'm just saying this as like, I'm talking to myself too, but like we all need to take breaks to become our most creative selves. Also, I just think when we overrun ourselves, we just are not working as efficiently or as productively and taking a step back will send us like so much further ahead if we're just able to take that step back. And I just think it's so important to do. So I really hope that people will take a break over the summer and then think about what, you know, they, what could they learn from their remote teaching or like what little pieces went well that they want to incorporate into next year. Like you got past a really hard spot of learning the how to's of the tool, like the onboarding. So now is when we can really think about the lesson design 
And I think that's when you have transformation is when we can take a step back and look at the lesson design. So even things that may not have gone super well this past year might be completely different in the year ahead when when teachers really have more time and also you know when students have a more healthy routine it's almost like you should have been on episode 105 with us because ben and i talked about a lot of this stuff here and uh just uh, great minds yeah. think alike i guess you could yes. say at this point so uh so listeners if you have not listened to 105 yet go back one episode yes. and uh, you can hear ben and i's thoughts on this so yeah, take a break this summer. It is still summer as yes. these episodes are dropping. So if you are working right now, find a way to take a break. So yes. Now, Stacy, your book is on Amazon. I put a link in the show notes for it for listeners so they can uh, find that. Um, and then you did mention your Twitter account a little bit ago. So yep. just remind listeners of what your Twitter handle is, or if there's any websites or any other ways that people yep. can connect with you, please. Thank you. So Twitter is a great space um, to chat with me. My Twitter handle is at BuddyXO. And my website is techiemusings.com. And so I have you know, my contact information there. I blog there. I also have information about my book there. I have book study questions um, and you know, other resources. I have a lot of flipped classroom videos. I have all of my tech tutorials are all linked there. So, you know, I make my tech tips for the people that I work with at school, but why not share them with everybody? So those are all linked um, on my website also. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here. And yes. I feel like we say this every episode. We, we look down and was like, wow, we've been at this for 50 minutes at this point and just incredible conversations. Time goes by yes. quickly when that happens. So thank you very much. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity to share and also for, you know, all the great sharing that you do with, with your audience, because it's just like, when, when we as teachers find the right tools and we find the right messaging, I think it can just make all the difference. And so I know that that's part of why I started sharing was just because I was learning so much from other people and it changed the way I was able to teach. And so I feel like, you know, I, I want to give back a little bit um, in that same way. So I appreciate it. If I'm speaking an emoji, it's three fires and a 100 on that one. So, <laughs> yep, there Excellent. it is. So. Awesome. So listeners, let's keep this conversation going. You can connect with us by email at info at beeredupodcast.com. You can tweet us at beeredupod using hashtag beeredupod. Hit us up on our Facebook page, beeredupodcast. That's all one word. Follow us on Instagram at beeredupod. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at bit.ly slash beeredu YouTube. And then again, make sure you're following Stacy on Twitter at buddyxo. Voice message using the Anchor app. We'll feature on the show if you would like to leave us one. And leave us a review wherever you listen so more can find the show. And, Ben, if people want to be on the show like Stacy, what do they have to do? Yeah, so just go to our website. Kyle gave you the information. It's beeredupodcast.com. You click on the contact and subscription info link. 
that will take you to a guest form. You just need to fill that out. And we would be remiss if we didn't thank uh, some amazing people for promoting uh, Beer Edu Podcast. That includes School Rubric. So School Rubric, they, they are a great site. Their mission is to help schools, educators, and parents and students tell their stories so that stakeholders can make the best choices um, in enrollment and in staffing. So you can learn more at schoolrubric.com um, and find out great content from educators, not only in the US, but from around the world. And then also, we are super excited to be part of the Codebreaker Podcast Network. So please check out them because you can find the Staff Room Podcast, the STEM Everyday uh, Podcast, Teachers on Fire, My EdTech Life. So many great educational podcasts out there. Share with those people, just like Stacy said, they're sharing their stuff. So check them out at codebreakeredu.com. So Stacy would love for you to stick around a little bit. This is the part of the show where Kyle's going to teach us something. So we start a little bit. We talked about some beer. Kyle's got some more stuff for us. So Kyle, what do we got? So continuing on our journey through different hop varieties that are used in beer, this week we're going to take a look at the Simcoe hops. And uh, this is another one of those more popular yep. varieties that are out there. Uh, very well known for use in IPAs. They are a versatile hop variety, though. But again, it's partly because, I mean, IPAs are just common as it is. But this is a very, very common IPA hop. Um, another relatively new one, like the ones that we've talked about before, developed and released back in 2000. So only about 20 years ago was when the mm -hmm. Simcoe hop was developed. Um, this one is sometimes referred to as Cascade hops on steroids because Cascade hops have that nice fruity, a little bit of citrus, a little bit of earthiness mm -hmm. to them. The fruitiness and the earthy tones really come out in Simcoe hops, especially the earthy ones, in my opinion. So anytime I know a beer has Simcoe hops in it, I know that's going to be one that's going to have that earthiness to it. And uh, sometimes I'm totally cool with that. Sometimes I'm like, ah, I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily want that, especially if it's super hot. I'm not, I'm not a fan of the earthiness when it's super hot. So what do you get with this besides that earthiness? You get notes of berry, apricot, passion fruit, and citrus. But you also get that pine and that woodsy earthiness as well. So, and that's uh, what really makes that Simcoe hop shine a little bit. Uh, they're they're used for bittering, but they're also used for flavoring and aromas as well. Uh, IPA again, that's your most common style mm -hmm. that it's used in. But you also get Simcoe hops in barley wines, um, mm -hmm. sometimes in lagers. Uh, lagers don't typically they're they're not overly hopped, so um, you're you're not getting a lot of that in the lagers. But then porters and stouts as well. So sometimes, especially with a nice imperial style, you get that hopped up real nicely. And the Simcoe hops really pairs very well, the earthiness with the uh, the sweetness in a stout, uh, but also like wild ales that are using that wild yeast. Okay. Uh, sour right. type beers will sometimes use the Simcoe hops. So again, it's used in a variety of beers. So when I, I was trying to find some specific beers that you know Simcoe hops yeah. are in them. And, and I, I had a hard time finding some stuff. The only one I could really find where Simcoe hops is really prominent in it was, this is one I know you love. Yes. It's a New Belgium's Ranger IPA Ranger. series. Yep. So basically any IPA that New Belgium out of Colorado is making that is part of that Ranger series, like Voodoo Ranger, um, yep. all of those, they tend to use Simcoe hops in those. And again, it gives that nice earthiness to it. 
Well, and, and while you were talking about that, I was going through Untapped and I just put in Sim Co-ops. There are a bunch of beers, but a lot of these look like really small breweries. So I, I'd be interested to see if there's one that that is like the Ranger that just uses the bulk of them. Because I, I don't see, I mean, Stone does an IPA with, with a Simcoe, but I mean, I think it's an added along with other ones. Well, I think part of it is because of that earthiness. And yeah. earthiness is a flavor that is something that a lot of people just, they don't get into it. Right. Uh, right. When it, especially, I mean, IPAs are an acquired taste for a lot of people anyway. Right. But the IPAs that people tend to like are the ones that are more citrusy, yep. fruity, even piney a little bit. But mm -hmm. when you start getting that earthiness in it, because sometimes, if you've got a really overpowering earthiness, it could almost taste like a dirty mushroom, which yep. sounds weird, but that's kind of what you get with it sometimes. So like if all of a sudden, like you're trying to get somebody to love a beer and it tastes like a mushroom that was not washed off. I mean, <laughs> that's a hard well, sell. And, and IPAs traditionally have that sharp, I mean, bitter, like there's this very distinct taste with an IPA and the Simcoe hops. I don't know. That is, you're right. That's exactly what it is. It's kind of, an, it's more of an earthy. So yeah, I'm not sure I would love an IPA that was just Simcoe hops. Yeah. You know, because again, that earthiness. And I mean, again, I like that earthiness in an IPA sometimes. And then Amber Ales will I, get that sometimes. Yes. Where you get that nice I, earthiness from it. But to especially if you're trying to get people to drink several of them, it's just, that's a hard no. sell in my opinion. Right. So I think that's why we were struggling to kind of find some of the more, the common like right. well-known beers as a result. Right. Well, and, and so I would be interested if anybody out there is listening, if you know of one, we would love to try it. So I, now I'm in a quest. I'm going to go start looking because like yeah. I said, I went through untapped and I can't see at least of the ones I, I just searched Simcoe because then, I mean, so I don't know. There's probably a more refined way for me to do my search. So Well, and I'm sure out. a lot of brewers are probably pairing this with your, your Cascades right. and your Amarillo yep. and your Citra hops because they're going to balance each other out. Yep. Where, uh, like a Citra right. hop that's got that nice, bright grapefruit uh -huh. pairing with that earthiness from a Simcoe it'll, hop is going to really balance out, out level yeah. each other yeah. out. So I would agree. But um, and I know they're, they're common enough where I know that home brewers use them quite a bit too yep. because those that I know that homebrew they like to use them in their IPAs in their mm -hmm. um like their British style ales right. as well and that with the British IPA you get a lot more earthiness anyway so they're common right. they they can be used in a British style as well. We'll have to find out. Yes. So For again, a future episode. Now I'm gonna have to go look. Yeah. So like Ben said, if you if you're aware of some beers with the Simcoe hops featured prominently, let us know because uh, yep. we would like to check those out cuz you know, I mean, obviously after 106 episodes, Ben and I like beer, we like to try new ones. We do. Who so, knew? Who knew? So Well, I think that puts a bow on yeah. 106. Yes. So Stacy, thank you so much for joining us and and sharing your journey and and super excited to 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 read more of your blog and everything. Thank you. Yes, indeed. So, and listeners, as always, we thank you for joining us and learning with us and having fun with us and probably having a beer with us too. And until next time, may the malts and the hops be with you. Right on. Right on.